Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined remotely today in our virtual studio by LARB Managing Editor Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. So today we have a conversation with Rufy Thorpe about her recent novel, The Knockout Queen. And if you stay through the end of the interview, you'll hear me start to tear up on the line. As, and I mentioned this in the interview that this book made me cry several times. And there's a really beautiful way that Rufy ends the show talking about friendship, which is a major theme in the book that really just brought me to tears. And in the best kind of way, I hope, dear listeners, it will also bring you to tears so that I won't be alone. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I also truly found this book astonishing. It was not what I had at all expected it to be, but it's it's so, yeah. So we should say it's about this friendship between two young people, but it Mm -hmm. traces their friendship into their adulthood, Bunny and Michael. And for me, what was so interesting about it was the way the book thought about crime and punishment. I truly think it's like a 21st century version of crime and punishment. Um, And victimhood and all of the ways in which these things are present in our everyday world. It's really, it's an amazing novel, but certainly the, the cherry on the sundae was that it brought Eric to tears. (laughs) (laughs) that's what i look for in every novel yeah you know this is probably not going to achieve my goal i put it down (laughs) but luckily Um, we didn't have to do that here yeah this one really won the prize in that case it's a really lovely thing to listen to and, and actually think about this kind of friendship during this era of social distancing. absolutely that's another thing that i don't think we talked about on the actual interview but I was thinking about how much physical touch there is in this book and how aching it felt to read about a world of touch that in many ways seems no longer part of our at least immediate present. Um, So, all right. Well, with those happy notes, (laughs) let's get to the interview. Let's do it. Rufy Thorpe on the line with us today. Rufy received her MFA from the University of Virginia in 2009. Her first novel, The Girls from Corona Del Mar, was long listed for the 2014 International Dylan Thomas Prize and the 2014 Flaherty Dunnan First Novel Prize. Her second novel, Dear Fang with Love, was published by Knopf in May 2016. And her latest novel is called The Knockout Queens, also from Knopf. And we had the pleasure of publishing Rufi, I think, maybe about four years ago now. It's kind of a while ago. It was a beautiful piece. And it's great to have you on the line. Thank you so much for joining us, Rufi. Thank you guys for having me. So, Rufi, I guess I wanted to start out, well, a little bit framing the book. So the book is basically, for our listeners, it concerns a very intense, very troubled, but also, I think, quite beautiful friendship between a young girl and a gay guy who meet when they are in their teens. And then there's a kind of dramatic moment that happens that splits them apart. And then it's kind of reckoning with the fallout of that split. 
So I'm trying not to give too much away because it's like, it's a really beautiful story and it kind of takes these quite interesting turns. But one thing I wanted to at least start with is to think about the book as a meditation on friendship. And I think this is what really spoke so much to me while I was reading your novel about how difficult friendship is, like the weird kind of love that being friends with someone else is. So can you just talk a little bit about how you were feeling about friendship or thinking about friendship as you were writing the novel? Well, I mean, I tend to write a lot about friendship. And I think one reason is that it's a unique relationship because you're not really using each other to meet needs. So you're not getting sex from that person. You're not working with that person and getting money or working on a shared project together. You just like each other. And the looseness of that relationship and the sort of ill-defined character of it, there's lots of different kinds of relationships that we all put under the heading of friend. And so it allows you to kind of get really close with someone and then distant for many years and then close again in a way that we feel like, especially with romantic relationships, it has to be clearly defined, like you're together or you're not. And so friendships tend to go on for a really long time because there's not as much of a reason to end them. And what I like about that is that I'm most interested in how people change over longer chunks of time. And so I think that for me, what's most interesting about friendship is you stay friends for long enough that you're a different person and they're a different person. And yet your lives are sewn into each other's and you may not like them, but you love them and you can't undo that. Oh, that's an interesting way of thinking about friendship as almost like family. It's like these bonds that can't really be broken, even though they're strained by a bunch of kind of external and internal forces. I do think there's a lot of similarity there. I remember my high school Russian teacher was always like, you Americans, you expect to like your friends. So weird. (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, does that feel accurate to your experience? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that her point was like, a friend is someone who will give you toilet paper if you really need it you know, and not someone Mm. who like gets you or that you have some, you know, spiritual connection with. And I think it's both, obviously. Right. So the two friends in the middle of this story are Bunny and Michael. And their relationship, as you said, it changes. It changes because they grow. And the things that make them grow are, they truly shocked me, I think, at certain points of the novel, I didn't see the novel going there because they involve so much violence and so much thinking about violence. And I also don't want to use that term violence lightly. It is the real, true violence in which bodies are deeply, deeply hurt. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is how do you think about violence? And what made you think about this friendship in the context of such intense violence that breaks out at different moments in the book? Well, I mean, in a certain sense, I think that violence came even before the friendship in terms of what I wanted the book to be about. The book is a lot about having a body and the rebelliousness of the body that has all sorts of desires that you may not want it to have and reactions that you can't quite control. And 
so for me, there's this interesting sort of like doubleness where both sex and violence, they're both just touching. They're both just different kinds of touching, and yet they have so much moral weight. And I think we have so much ambivalence about the extent to which we are or are not animals, whether our base impulses are our truest self or something that we should be repressed so that we can enact our highest self. Or I think we have a lot of really like confused different impulses that are historical. And so that's part of why I wanted to think about violence, which we at once, you know, demonize and make otherworldly strange in a million different shows about serial killers. And then also all turn on, you know, boxing and football and it's good old American fun. And we have a lot of contradictory positions about violence. Yeah. And part of the thing that is interesting about the violence in this book is that it permeates almost every aspect of these kids' lives, beginning with Michael's family and whose mother goes to jail for stabbing his father, but who is responding to the violence that the father inflicts on her. It's kind of constant. It's almost like a foundational building block of their lives. I think it is foundational. I think especially, I guess, part of what I was wondering. So I always write books about things that I don't have answers to, (laughs) as opposed (laughs) to things that I think I have a clear understanding of, because, you know, you don't want it to become some sort of like fake philosophical proof where you're like, I think this about the world. Now let me arrange some fake people to prove it to you. And so I have had all sorts of conflicting feelings about violence and about bodies. And so I think that that's why I decided to explore it. What were your conflicted feelings? Well, I mean, I think that as a woman, I did not really even, I didn't have a lot of strong, violent impulses until really I started like playing sports and found this competitive sort of drive (laughs) where I suddenly wanted to, you know, knock people over. But even then that stayed very like contained and I never, I was honestly felt grateful that I wasn't going to have to, you know, punch someone in a bar because they were rude to my girl or something. You know, I felt excused societally as a woman from having to wield the power of violence. And I was pretty happy with that. And then it was really only when I was like in a relationship that got abusive and I kind of understood that I was not going to be able to physically win these fights. (laughs) I had not really processed to what extent women are always physically at the mercy of men. I'd known that they were stronger, but I didn't really understand how much stronger, I think. Actually, you know, Rufi, in a sense, to return to a point that you'd made about the body as something central to this novel. I mean, I think that's an interesting and maybe almost counterintuitive point of unity between Michael and Bunny. So Bunny has a body that feels to her and reads publicly as we might say gender nonconforming, right? Mm -hmm. She's very tall. She's large. She's muscular. She's a big woman and she's existing as a big woman in a kind of local culture that's here in North shore. So right in our SoCal area, And in that culture, you want petite, thin, kind of almost like wayfish women as a beautiful ideal. 
So on the one hand, Bunny is struggling with how to fit her body into the kind of desire matrix of her society. And similarly, because Michael is gay, there's a lot of anxiety about how his body should be interacting or shouldn't be interacting with other bodies, how his body can betray certain desires, right? So erections or arousal when it's not kind of part of what would be considered quote unquote normal. And then also his affect, the Mm -hmm. way that his voice reads. So can you talk a little bit about how On the one hand, you know, the thing that seems to happen is that they defend one another's bodies, either allowing each other to find one another beautiful or to affirm one another's beauty. But then also in Bunny's case, one of the big things that happens in the novel is that she attacks another girl using Bunny's own physical strength as a way of defending Michael who's Mm -hmm. being subject to homophobic slurs. So can you talk a little bit about bodiliness as a kind of interesting point of connection between these two characters? Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, that is part of what they have in common is that they are both not able to fit comfortably inside whatever sort of societal definitions. And I think it's especially exacerbated. I mean, they're in high school. It's like, it's as bad as it's ever going to get in terms of feeling like the box that you're in is too narrow. And so there's, you know, Bunny has this unfortunate sexual experience where she makes out with a boy and it's so exciting. And then he calls and tells her that he's terrified of her and then spreads all these rumors about her at school. And there's a lot of shame for both of them shame that what you want and who you are isn't okay, shame about your family, all sorts of shame. And so even though I think in a lot of ways they seem like opposites, part of what they are interested in together is, like you said, finding each other beautiful. And also like they love drag culture and they love RuPaul's Drag Race and they love watching these images of femininity be taken apart and put back together again in this empowering way. And that drag also, right, allows them to see the possibility of transforming, we might say, like the facticity of one's body into some other kind of body. Oh, absolutely. Like that has to be part of the appeal for them. I think so. Well, Michael is really gifted mimic. And so I think he is as naturally duplicitous as Bunny is unable to be duplicitous. (laughs) And so there is always about make-believe games or pretending. They're both really interested in that for sort of different reasons. Him because he is gifted at it Mm. and her because she is absolutely unable to do it. One of the really interesting things that the book manages to do that is quite a feat I think, though in the context of the book and the way that book moves through these ideas, it really makes sense, is that it connects the drag and their interest in drag and with the playing of identity to the justice system, (laughs) which sounds crazy when you say it, but, um, (laughs) but that they, or Michael at least, begins to identify drag and ways in which people essentially are in drag and almost every aspect of life and in the justice system, I think, at least most movingly for me. So the thing that I want to ask is, how did you get from one place to the other? (laughs) And was there a point in time when you were like, oh, I see there's a natural connection between the ways in which 
drag works in different spheres and that there's ways and areas in which drag exists and we just don't even recognize it as that anymore. Well, so there's so many different ways that I could answer this. I think one way is to just narratively talk about how I came to write the book and sort of the order that the ideas came in. And I had written a book like 10 years ago about a character named Bunny Lampert that was physically powerful and strong and also a boxer. And there was none of the plot of this current book. There was just this character. And that book, you know, never saw the light of day, but she kept coming up in my mind. And I think that it's a pure wish fulfillment fantasy, right? Of having this power and the strength. And then also the responsibility of having physical power is also something that Bunny finds out all about. And so I think that that's where it really started. And I tried for like a year to write this book without Michael. And mm-hmm. then when I started, it didn't work, essentially. And I couldn't figure out why. And then I sort of understood that Bunny was not seeing the situation in all of its nuance and tragedy. For her, it was just pain, there wasn't enough insight. And so I needed somebody that loved her, but that was also distant enough from her to understand what was going on. And then Uh, Michael just sort of came to me in a rush, which I'm not one of those writers that thinks that I'm channeling something from some other place. If something explodes out of me, it is a deeply repressed aspect of self. That's, that's what that is. And um, sort of sure enough, he started dredging up all sorts of, I don't really write autobiographical things. I don't like to in part because I just like can't see myself well enough to make myself a sympathetic character, like maybe more therapy and I'll be able to do it, but right now I can't. And so he started bringing up all this autobiographical stuff that I didn't, I had had no intention of connecting. And so it was my experience, like spending my twenties being straight, but also finding women to sleep with on the internet and sort of double thinking my way through that. And so all his experience is my experience. And I think, cause I get a lot of questions about, he feels like a real gay guy. And I'm like, well, he feels also like a young gay woman. Um, <laughs> but, That's exactly what I was going to ask you. So I'm really glad that we're talking about this, but yeah. it's so interesting. But so it was the introduction of Michael that made me understand that it wasn't just about violence and it wasn't just about power. It was also about desire and about vulnerability and about the ways we can't control our body and the ways we can't control who we love. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, he loves his mom. And when she stabs his dad and goes to prison, it breaks his heart. And I think it's another, like, Ray Lampert is maybe one of my favorite characters in the book. And he is so awful and so likable. And I I guess that's kind of like how people seem to me generally. We're all just such assholes. (laughs) So it was understanding the two pieces together, the violence and sexual desire, and then having them be male and female and understanding gender as being really orienting to how you're allowed to interact with both Mm -hmm. sex and violence that made drag such an important piece of understanding that it's all kind of fake, you know? As you're talking about this, one of the other things that had 
occurred to me, because when you mentioned very early on in the novel, the two characters bond, as we were talking about earlier, over watching RuPaul's Drag Race, and that suddenly brought everything into the contemporary moment. So one of the things that's interesting to me, and I think maybe to my own detriment about this all the time, but perhaps you do too, is the push and pull between acceptance tolerance and words like that with regard to LGBTQ people as something that feels like, well, that's done now. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's a way in which Michael's story, which I think is probably also, as you're saying, your story, similar to my, like there's definitely moments. I think that's part of where we were talking before the interview about how I cried multiple times while reading this book. And I think there are moments where you get at what my teen life was like also but this is not something that is over, right? Oh, no. that, and it's not something that's, oh, that's out there. You're writing about, you know, liberal bastions, Southern California in virtually the present in which a kid is viciously gay bashed towards the latter part of the novel and also has real fears about abandonment and social ostracization because of who he loves. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what was it like writing about a character like that in the present and also not having it be this happy story about, oh, well, now that part of his identity isn't a big deal? It's really possible that I would not have written it that way if Trump hadn't been elected. (laughs) I think it was- Oh, that's interesting. I think it was easier to believe in steady incremental progress and to sort of just like really feel like everything was getting better, even if it was slow and, you know, not even, but especially living, I mean, I've spent most of my life either in California or in major cities on the East Coast. And so it's easy for me to think that in ways it is done or at least that it's getting better. But I don't think that anymore. And not just because like, oh, the country's changed or something. I think that I really had a false perception of where everybody was at. I used to think like, oh, women's liberation, like you can't take it back. Like the cat's out of the bag. And now we're just like going to get to be citizens with everybody else. And we're going to And now I'm like, I don't know, it could easily, I mean, history is long and it is very possible that women will go back to being chattel at some point. You never know what's going to happen in the next like, you know, 700 years. And so I feel like we have this moment historically where we can even, one of the gifts of growing up in our generation is that we can even imagine that it could ever be over or that it should, or that anyone could ever think that. I feel like that's kind of how I feel about it now. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Rufy Thorpe, author of The Knockout Queen. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We're talking to Felicia Anjeja Vitor. Her new book is called To Live and Defy in LA, How Gangster Rap Changed America. And Felicia is going to give us a book recommendation. Felicia, what book are you going to recommend? I have to recommend White Tears by Hari Kunzru. I've meant to read that forever. 
Oh my gosh. It's amazing. I think it came out in 2017. I did read it a couple years ago and it still lingers for me. Like it is, it still haunts me. It's just this tale about a very kind of the real obsessive worshiping kind of love that white record collectors have for their treasures, especially when their treasures are these long lost recordings by black musicians from another era. And Kunzru takes you on this ride deep into the psychology and really the violence of cultural appropriation. I mean, that sounds very, <laughs> very dark, but it is a ride that is, it's beautiful. It's, it's jarring. It's haunting. It's beautiful. It's, this is probably too simplistic of a comparison, but if you can imagine Jordan Peele remaking the movie High Fidelity as a horror film, <laughs> then you, you have a sense for the tone of the novel and of how entertaining it is. It's one of the best best things I've read in a few years and I could not put it down. So I highly recommend. Wow. That, that's a great elevator pitch for that book. <laughs> do, you have, <laughs> do you have the collecting impulse at all? Do you collect or treasure anything in particular? Tattoos. That's what I collect uh, <laughs> on, on myself. Yeah. Yeah. You don't really have to treasure those. They're, they're there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do treasure them. Something that causes you that much pain. Um, you know, you, you do treasure it. You just treasure it as an experience that's, you know, just it's there on your skin. That's what I collect mostly. Uh, well, that's great collection, but also a very good book recommendation. Can you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Sure. The title is White Tears by Hari Kunzru. And I can spell the name if you'd like. Sure. It's Hari, H-A-R-I. And the last name is Kunzru, K-U-N-Z-R-U. And I think I'm pronouncing it right. Yeah, white tears. So good. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, Felicia. Of course. We've been talking to Felicia Anjeja Vietor. Her new book is called To Live and Defy in LA. Thank you again, Felicia. Oh, no problem. Thank you so much. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Rufi Thorpe, author of The Knockout Queen. Can you talk a little bit more about the autobiographical aspect of this book, if you feel comfortable doing that? Sure. I mean, I, <laughs> um, I, I, I feel really... So I started writing... You know, when you're starting to write a novel... Like, I wasn't even sure it would turn into anything publishable. So you make this series of decisions based on what's working creatively and artistically and not necessarily on, like, do I feel great publishing this? Mm -hmm. And especially writing from first-person point of view from a young gay man, I had a lot of anxiety that that had been an immoral decision and that mm -hmm. that was, you know, telling a story that wasn't mine or, you know, that was somehow inauthentic. And that's a really hilarious thing to worry about when it is also your story. <laughs> um, but I think that, um, so for me, I feel like, 
So I guess what I think is interesting in terms of any kind of contribution to the whole cultural appropriation thing is I have been a horrible member of the gay community. I am like barely out. I mean, like I told my family and friends, but I don't have like a rainbow emoji in my Twitter profile. I I wound up marrying a man. And so it's kind of like erased. And honestly, I a lot of times don't bring it up with my like mom friends because I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. And mm. so, and it's just, nobody asks, you know? So if it comes up in a story or something, it's not like I'm, you know, lying, but it, it it's not a, it's not a resolved thing for me. Mm. And so obviously that's why I wrote the book is because, <laughs> because I, it was something that I had not figured out and that I had not made peace with. And so it is at once like, I have no right to have written this. I have no right to speak right. for the gay community. But of course, I also wrote it from a very authentic place. And so it's a weird form of drag. I think fiction is obviously a, a kind of drag also. That's part of, I think, what always interested me about it. Well, I will say, Rufi, that just obviously only speaking for myself, no one is representative of the entire community. But as I was reading it, as, and I, as I hear you talking about it now, those are real affects that queer people of many different stripes and experiences still live with in the present, right? So in that sense, it's like you're, you know, like I, I'm interested in when you were saying that it's like, I don't want to bring this up with my other mom friends because of, you know, that it might make them feel uncomfortable. And it strikes me that that's the same kind of ongoing legacy of queer shame that many of us still navigate in the present, right? So there's this like kind of rush in media culture to be like, oh, everything is fine. Everybody's doing fine. And it's like one of the things that I think I deeply appreciate about this book it has the feeling of this is inelegant, but a kind of realistic anachronism, right? Where it's mm. a thing that feels like, oh, right, well, gay shame is this thing that we're supposed to be over now, except that we're not, you oh, know, yeah. like that's, that is still there. So in any event, I'm just for myself, I'm giving you, I'm giving you a pass. Um, but uh, the, the other thing that I wanted to turn to, and now super inelegantly, is to another question that I think haunts the novel, which is the question about justice. So there's a very interesting turn, and this is not spoiling too many things, but as we said, Michael's mother was sent to jail for stabbing his father, but the other side of that is that his father was very violently abusive and in kind of dribs and drabs, we get the sense that he was also potentially, you know, really threatening to kill the mother mm -hmm. in this moment when we can see it as an act of self-defense. And then similarly, you know, when Bunny lashes out and there's a trial because of the harm she's inflicted on this person who was verbally kind of harming her friend or casting aspersions about him, Michael starts to process both his feelings about what is just in the world, right? Who is treated badly, who is treated well, and how that kind of striates across class, gender, race. But then also he's suddenly disabused of the idea that, well, because this girl is rich, she's untouchable, 
mm-hmm. right? And it, and then even in his own experience of gay bashing, Michael has to process then what he thinks of justice. There's a lot of questions about when someone goes into the carceral system, that is not reparative. It doesn't, no, it doesn't assuage it doesn't the, help the harm. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So I, I'm interested, can you just talk about, and obviously there was lots of research that went into you know, and you get at this in your acknowledgments of kind of observing the court system, uh, talking to, you know, kind of lawyers and things like that. So can you talk a little bit about how the the concept of justice or the legal system functions in this novel and what you're trying to unpack there? Well, I mean, I think that I've always been really interested in punishment and what we think punishment is going to do. And I think punishment and shame are really connected. I think that like shaming and Mm. shunning are sort of the original punishment. And so there's this real connection between being liked by others, being valued, being a member of a community. And, you know, the opposite of that is being cast out of that community. And so if you're going to talk about someone on city council, you're also going to talk about somebody in jail. And I've just always been very, well, I mean, I, so in my personal experience with uh, the justice system, I have had, you know, friends in jail and prison and um, it's so crazy. <laughs> like it's so, it's such, it's, mm. it's, it's like one of those situations where a concept was enacted in good faith in the beginning. And then it keeps, you know, changing and getting added to over time, this idea of incarcerating people. And then in California, you know, you have thousands and thousands and thousands of people being incarcerated for many, many years over a $10 bag of drugs. And it just getting to see firsthand kind of probation and how all of that works and how difficult it is to get a job after. And, and so we've wound up, there's this conflict between solving the problem, which would maybe be taking someone who is got a controlled substance and offering them like drug treatment or punishing them. And it's really hard for us to let go of this idea of punishment and that we need to enact judgment of people in this world ourselves on this realm and and i think michael feels that really acutely with bunny if she Mm. forgives herself he can't forgive her when she is being punished and being held accountable he's filled with all the ways that she shouldn't be he cannot make up his mind kind of how punishment, like he can't let go of punishing her, but he also doesn't want to see her punished. Um, And I think that he feels in a weird way, similarly about um, the boys that attack him. Like what, what he actually wants is for them to just be like completely removed from the world. (laughs) so that He never has to see them again. Um, Uh And, But I think that it does still sort of stun him that they don't receive really any, any punishment. I think that too, I got, one of my um, good friends was a, worked for domestic abuse hotline and she was just filled with the frustrating stories of 
these physical fights and it usually like it's a abusive relationship and then the woman fights back and then gets the book thrown at her because it is viewed as so much more frightening and monstrous when a woman is violent than when a, when it when a man is violent if a man is violent right. he just lost his temper if a woman does something violent then she is some kind of like non-human woman she's like a monster i guess that all those that constellation of things really interests me Actually, related to that, one of the, the parts of this book that I thought was really interesting was the recurrent discussions about victimhood that the two characters have and their intermittent distaste for victims who, you know, as they, you know, in a, in a misguided conversation, can't just get over it or can't just... Um, avoid the violence that is being inflicted upon them or can't fight back or whatever. But you saying that about, you know, a woman fighting back, that there's these two contradictory narratives that are played out within this, our society where, well, why don't you just fight back? Why don't you do something about it? And then also, well, if you do something about it, you're a monster. Oh, exactly. um, And you're worse than you're the attacker. I mean, it's, it's the same kind of weird double thinking about like rape, you know, if you come forward, then you're asking for attention. But if you don't like there, it's, um, and it's kind I think it's another weird form of like, oh, well, like violence towards an oppression of people based on their sexuality is over and we're all sort of enlightened now. But if you hear a news story about someone, you know, about a hate crime and someone being attacked, you're like, oh yeah, yeah. You know, we do a lot mm -hmm. of double thinking about really core issues around um, identity. And that kind of always interests me, like the tangle, the knot of the contradictory things that we feel and believe. And so victimhood is one of those things where, I mean, who wants to be a victim? You're always, I mean, I still like, I had a, a bad thing happen to me and um, I got uh, obsessed with the fact that I'd had my car keys. And why mm -hmm. hadn't I thought to just leave and drive away? Like, even if I didn't have anywhere to go, I could have gotten in my car and locked the door. And why didn't I do that? And it was just so much easier for me to try and imagine that I had secretly had control over that situation mm -hmm. and easier for me to blame myself for it kind of than to imagine that I was like truly powerless. And so um, Bunny has sort of a similar impulse where she doesn't want Michael to have been a victim. She doesn't want him to have lost agency. She can't bear it. Um, mm -hmm. And so, she, you know, she she sort of accuses him of, like, not having responded well enough to this violent situation that he was in. I don't know. I, I think that all that for me is tied to the problem of not knowing what it's like to be somebody else. We all think, like, you know, we all want to weigh in on the am I the asshole post and say, like, here, in a paragraph, tell me your life and then I'm going to judge you and tell you what you should do. <laughs> and the reality is that, like, even our closest friends, you know, sometimes you'll have a moment where you find out one tiny piece of information and your whole perception of them changes and you realize they were going through something that you didn't understand or that the world seemed one way to them that that you didn't see. And so that for me is really why I write novels to begin with is to try and understand what it, what it's like to be a person. Mm-hmm. 
In terms of your own experience, how did you, I'm so sorry to hear about it, how did you transition from that way of thinking, from the obsession about the car keys, to maybe there's other ways for me to think about this? Well, I mean, really just time, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think time helps because as you get older, then your younger self seems like a child to you. And so you just understand that you didn't get the idea. You didn't understand that you could do that. And so you, you did what you did. And it's not saying that, like, the reason you have to remember about your car keys is not because you're not the victim. It's in fact, the fact that the world will continually try to victimize you that you should remember and use your car keys whenever you can. So it's not Mm -hmm. like a negation of the truth of the experience of victimhood. Like, does that make sense? I feel like sometimes we try and take people, take victimhood from people. Like it is something they wanted. Like it's some cloak or some special anointment that they've given themselves. Like I am the blameless victim or something, but nobody wants to be the victim or I mean, not, not for long, not really. Yeah. I think it's because there's a ways, ways in which, and this is, you know, ends up being really inconvenient for people is that victimhood can be demanding from other people, right? That one demands something by being a victim, but one demands sympathy or empathy or some kind of action or justice. And that is really unpleasant. Um, and so if you, if you rid them of the victims of the victim um, status, you rid, you rid yourself of the demands that might otherwise be made upon you. I think that, that. that's my reading at least. <laughs> There was a good tweet this morning that was like, what if instead of considering like suicidal attention, uh, like ideation or as cries for help, what if we like phrase it as care seeking? And then would Mm -hmm. you, you know, or like when people say that certain behaviors are attention seeking, it's like, yes, (laughs) they need your attention. (laughs) They need help. Yeah. But that's so inconvenient. You know, that's so unpleasant. I think that's partly where, I don't know, something that might, <laughs> where that something like that might come out of. I guess one way of kind of wrapping it up is to wonder also about like, you know, a, a lot of the things that we've talked about and, and which the book dwells on are kind of the ways in which individuals are both can be damaged and also how they navigate damage and, and lives after damage. But I guess I wanted to try to pull it back to think about the saving power of friendship, right? Even as we've talked about how friendship can be quite difficult, right? It's beautiful, but also ugly. Um, I think I walked away from the book thinking of a relationship with my very best girlfriend, Joanna, and how much that relationship has saved me over like many moments in my life. And it strikes me that that's even for all their difficulties, that that's kind of what Bunny and Michael are for each other. I mean, do you think that that's right? Yeah, I think that human connection is the redeeming part. It's It's the balm on the terrible wound. I mean, and people are also like, they're the biggest way that we get hurt and the biggest way that we get healed. And Mm. as much as love comes with all these terrible moral conundrums and consequences, 
it is also, you know, the only thing worth living for. And I think that I particularly like the friendship paradigm of love because oh, you're not trying to, I mean, it's not just about a lack of mutual dependence in terms of like, are they fulfilling my role or function in my wife or life? Are they cooking my meals? Or are they raising our children or whatever? It's not just the lack right. of those things. It's also that like you see them apart from you. They have their life. Like you, you they're more distant from you. And so you see more of them and you appreciate them like just almost like a character in a book, really. And you think about them in that same sort of ruminative way. And I just think that that is, um, it's so beautiful. It's sort of like a moment that I try to return to in my own personal relationships, especially with my mother. I think it's really difficult to see our parents as people as who they were mm. before they were our parents, who they are when we're not in the room. And so I think that w in romantic relationships with my kids, with my mom, you know, it's always a struggle of trying to take that moment and look at them, like really just look at them. That I think is something that Bunny and Michael can give to each other is they see each other without any masks on completely unadorned. And even if what they see is ugly and scary, they're still willing to look. Oh, Rufy, you're going to make me cry all over again. <laughs> That's really beautiful. And I hope that all of our listeners have a relationship like that in their life. I know I am, I've been blessed to have several such relationships, but that's really, really beautiful. And I think a really nice way to end. Okay. I agree. That's lovely. Okay. We've been speaking to Rufy Thorpe. Her latest novel is called The Knockout Queen. Thank you so much, Rufy. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley.